All right, thank you, Steve. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm so excited. We're starting a brand new series, Christmas series this morning. We're calling it Trees. And of course, you saw the word tree there in our scripture reading, but we'll come back to that in a minute. So I want to begin this morning by pointing out a couple things that all of us in the room have in common. The first thing is this. We've all had embarrassing moments, right, where in the past that were maybe they were awkward and they were kind of awful in the moment. But over time, little by little, we've kind of learned to tell those stories and even be able to laugh at ourselves about them. I'll tell you one of those for me. When I was in college, I was part of a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. They're still around, but these days they're called Crew. Well, anyway, I was dating a girl whose father was an anesthesiologist. He was a very prominent person, you know, in the community, and he was going to be hosting a party at his home for about 200 people, and because she and I were both part of crew, uh, she and I had been praying for weeks about an opportunity to speak to someone about Jesus at this party. We knew there was also going to be alcohol at this party, but we both made the decision in advance that we were going to abstain, you know, to be a good witness and to look for opportunities uh, to share Christ. So right before the party, she and I met, we prayed together, we trusted that God would, you know, direct our conversations that evening. So at around sunset, most people had ventured outside the house to take in a gorgeous sunset along the Ohio River. So as I was walking outside to join everyone, I was just struck by how vibrantly the sun was shining through the screen door. And I was so struck, in fact, that I did not notice that the screen door was actually closed. In fact, I would have never noticed at all if I hadn't tried to walk right through it. And if you've ever been tangled up in a screen door, you know that it surrounds you immediately. You can't reach, you can't grab anything. And so I kind of fell through the door, taking the screen and the frame with me. Well, when I looked up from the floor of the deck, everyone's eyes in the backyard, hundreds of them, were fixated on me. And that's when I made eye contact with her father, who visibly shook his head in disgust and literally turned the other way. And if that wasn't bad enough, I heard someone in the crowd say very loudly, he must be totally wasted. (laughs) So I have never been more embarrassed about anything than in that than in my life. And so needless to say, I did not get any opportunities to talk to anyone about Jesus that evening. And we all have stories similar to that or kind of like that, just super embarrassing stories, right? But the other thing that we all have in common is that there are things or memories in the past that are just so humiliating. They're so degrading. They're so painful. Not only are we deeply ashamed of those things, not only do we never laugh about them, but we don't even like to think about them. We just try to push them out of our mind because when we do, right, there's just we're just overwhelmed with feelings of shame and regret. We all have these moments in our lives that we'd like to go back, right, and relive or undo. And the painful reality is we know that that's impossible. And so we feel, you know, this uh, shame, regret, that kind of thing. See, shame is such a powerful thing. Now, we first encounter shame way back in Genesis chapter 3, 
Many of you know this story. Adam and Eve had known perfect fellowship with God, but their disobedience to him, their nakedness before him brought them shame. And in their shame, and this is so important to note, in their shame, they both attempted to hide from God. So we see very clearly early on that shame can be a powerful barrier uh, between people and God. And not just people and God, even people themselves. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. But even in that shame that occurred in Genesis chapter 3, God was so kind. He made clothing for them, first in the form of plants and then in the form of animal skins. And it's so noteworthy that for that shame to be covered up, animals had to die. Blood had to be shed. And we'll come back to that in a minute. So as a result, what you find throughout the Old Testament is there's this tension between a holy God, a, a, a righteous God, a set-apart God on the one hand, and sinful human beings on the other who are just prone to disobey Him and fail to live close to Him as He Himself intended. And so repeatedly through the Old Testament, you see a people who are either unwilling or they're unable to obey God or to keep the law. And even though they had a sacrificial system designed to provide an offering for sin, there just wasn't enough blood. There just weren't enough animals to cover the stain of their sin. So God would uh, sometimes say things like this to his people. This is Jeremiah 2, 22. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me declares the sovereign Lord. So again, this verse I think represents very, very well this tension between this holy God and a people who fall short of his glory again and again and again and again. And so this is why when the angel Gabriel announces the birth of Jesus, he calls it good news. I mean, because this was going to be a game changer. Uh, the death, the sacrifice, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus was going to be a game changer, not just for the nation of Israel, but according to the angel, it was going to be good news for all people everywhere. Uh, so let's kind of read uh, that initial um, conversation. Luke 10, or Luke 2, verses 10 through 14. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Now, why would he say that? Well, because the angel was terrifying. This is the angel Gabriel in all his glory, right? And so he says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So God is going to take things like shame and guilt, and he's going to replace them with joy and peace. Now, here's where it gets interesting for us in this room. 
Because we, you and I, we live in a day, we live in a culture, we live in an age where people will say something like this. They'll say, well, if there is a God, and I'm not sure there is, but if there is a God, we don't believe he's, he's like holy and righteous. He's not a holy deity before whom we all stand guilty and condemned. I mean, we don't believe human beings are actually going to have to stand before this holy God in judgment. And so I would just ask a couple of questions to folks like that. I would say, okay, well, if that's so, why do we still struggle with profound feelings of guilt and shame? I mean, where do things like guilt and shame come from? You know, we live in a world, interestingly enough, where we don't believe in judgment, we don't believe in sin, and yet we still feel that there is something profoundly wrong with us. Though our culture has abandoned many of the ancient categories, we still have a profound, inescapable sense that if we were each examined, we would be rejected. So we have the sense that if we were subjected to scrutiny, we would fall short. And this is why so many of us in the room try to hide our true selves from others um, or at least, uh, you know, uh, hide a part of ourselves from others because deep down we feel that if we, other people really knew who we were, we would be rejected. So where is all this self-doubt coming from? I remember when I was a sophomore in college, I was a brand new Christian. I'd just begun my very first Bible study with some other college students my own age. And it felt awkward to me. I didn't feel I belonged with that group of people. I was certain that if those other young men in that Bible study found out who I really was, they would vote me off the island. In other words, they would just ban me from the group. I was absolutely sure that none of those young men struggled with the kind of sin that I did but And even if they did struggle, they certainly had done a better job of avoiding that sin than I had. In fact, this is one of the tactics. Shame is one of the tactics that our enemy uses both to keep people from God and to, to keep people hiding from one another. In fact, I would say he uses three things to try to bring shame to us. Um, so first of all, he'll shame us, again, like I said, with one of three things. The first one is this. He'll try to shame us with lies. He'll just make up stuff. He'll say, you know, hey, other people think this about you, or other people, they think that about you, or, well, hey, you, you're just nothing but this, or you're nothing but that. And that might not even be true, but he's just the father of lies, right? He's, he's the guy that came up with lies. So he'll use lies to shame us. The second thing he'll use to shame us is our past. He'll go, hey, you remember when you did that thing? Hey, you remember when you said that thing? Hey, do you remember when you hurt that person? And he'll, so he'll try to use that shame to try to keep us from God, right? Because remember, way back in Genesis, the result of Adam, Adam and Eve's shame was they tried to hide from God. They took a step back from God. That's what shame always does. And then the third tactic that the enemy will just use is he'll use the truth about us. Because we all have weaknesses, 
right? We all have uh, things about ourselves that we'd like to change, and so he'll use those things. He'll speak those things into our heart, into our spirit, into our mind in order to keep us from God and to keep us from other people. See, when I was a sophomore in college, if God could have kept me in my shame where that Bible study was, I would have never opened up to any of those young men. I would have never shared my struggle with them, and I would have never been blown away with the fact that they struggled with all the same things that I did. I would have missed all that just for fear of being rejected and proven unworthy. See, the reality is, for every one of us in the room, we're all born with a narrative that plays inside our head that somehow we don't measure up. In fact, there's a new commercial out that tries to kind of rewrite that narrative. And uh, I'm going to play the commercial for you in a minute. And as you listen to the commercial, I don't think you're going to have any trouble at all picking up on the narrative that they're trying to rewrite. So as you're listening to this commercial, it's just 30 seconds, um, I want you to, I'm going to quiz you on what the narrative is that it's trying to replace. So let's watch it together. What's strong with me? 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 With me? With me? What's strong with me? What's strong with me? What's strong with me? Me, me, me. With me. Marshall, what's the narrative that plays inside your head and mine that it's trying to replace? What narrative is it trying to change? Oh, come on, don't act like you've never thought this before about yourself. What's the narrative? What's wrong? Yeah, this is a question we've all asked at one time or another, right? What's wrong? Now, I'm not going to speak for any of you, but I can speak for myself. When I watch this commercial, you know how it comes across to me? It comes across as weak and anemic. Because do you really think a commercial is going to change a narrative that's been playing in people's heads for thousands and thousands of years? You know, I, I don't think so. I don't believe it can rewrite that narrative. And sure, I mean, some of the people on the, in the ad are doing some amazing things, right? They're doing some things that the rest of us, most of us probably couldn't even do. But, but I know, as a student of the human race... That as amazing as some of those things are that they're doing, that all those people are going to go home after filming that commercial and they're going to wrestle with the profound feeling that something is wrong with them at some point. You know, as a teacher, one of the things that Jesus said, he said this in Mark chapter 7, if you don't believe me, is he said that evil isn't something that's out there, but that evil is something that flows out of the human heart. It's actually in here. 
So when we ask questions like, what is wrong with the world? Or why can the world be such a miserable place to live? Or why is there so much strife between nations and tribes and classes? I mean, why is there so much division and condemnation and backbiting between Democrats and Republicans? I mean, why do relationships tend to fray and fall apart? Well, Jesus would say, we are what's wrong. That evil isn't something that's just out there somewhere, it's in here, and that comes out. This is why when you log into social media and you see all the trolling and all the gossiping and all the backbiting, why is all that stuff there? Well, it's there because it's in the hearts of the people that are typing behind that on a keyboard. Let me give you an example. Um, so, so anyway, um, We are what's wrong. What lies in your heart and mind comes out in ways that are often dark and sinful. So example, uh, why do I sometimes regret the things that I say to my wife? Why does my wife sometimes regret the things that that, that she says to me? Do you know why I say those things to my wife? Because they're in here. They're in here. It's in here and it comes out. And it's in you. Let me give you just a great example of, um, of this. Uh, so in 1882, there was a New York City businessman by the name of Joseph Richardson who owned a five-foot-deep stretch of land that was 104 feet long. It, it lined Lexington Avenue in New York City. Well, another businessman owned the lot behind that little narrow plot of land and he decided he wanted to build apartments overlooking Lexington Avenue so he instructed his architect when he built that four-story building to put all the windows and all of the patios on that side overlooking the street but he had a problem the other guy owned that little five-foot plot of land between him and the street so he went to that businessman again his name was Joseph Richardson and he offered him a thousand dollars for the five-foot wide plot well Richardson as a businessman was deeply offended by the amount and demanded five thousand dollars so Sarner refused and Richardson called Sarner a tightwad slammed the door and the men never spoke again well Sarner assumed the land would remain vacant I mean it was only five feet wide right so again he built a four-story apartment building beautiful windows and patios overlooking Lexington Avenue well when Richardson saw the building the the finished building he resolved to block the view no one was going to enjoy a free view over his lot So 70-year-old Richardson built a house. It was five feet wide, it was 104 feet long, and it was four stories high with two suites on each floor. And so upon completion, he and his wife moved into one of the suites. Only one person at a time could ascend the stairs or pass through a hallway The largest dining table in any suite was 18 inches. I'm not making any of this up, by the way. 
The stoves were the very smallest made in that day and age. In fact, a newspaper recorder who'd come to do, a reporter who'd come to do a story on this feud between these two businessmen, he, he had some girth, and so he actually got stuck in the hallway trying to do the, the story in the stairwell. And after two tenants were unsuccessful dislodging him from the stairwell, he exited only by stripping down to his underwear. The building was actually called throughout New York City the Spite House. The Spite House. And Richardson spent the last 14 years of his life in that narrow residence that seemed to define his narrow state of mind. And furthermore, it wasn't until 1915 that the Spite House was torn down. Why do people do things like that? Why do people say things like that? Well, Jesus would say they do that because that's what's in. That's what's inside. What's inside always comes out. And Jesus would say revenge always builds a lonely house. It only creates a lonely heart. So, one of the ways we try to compensate for that, we try to compensate with all these like external measures. So like what I would call religious striving or in, engaging in politics to make the world a better place or even pop culture. And I'll give you an example of each of these. But one of the ways we try to accomplish this is through religious striving or kind of what I would call keeping the rules, being a, a good, trying to be a good person, you know, living by a code of conduct or in a way that we hope might be pleasing to God. And it's in, what we need to see is it's an external approach. It's an outside-in approach that Jesus would say can't change the heart. It can't remove that stain of sin and guilt that lies in our heart. So no matter what we do or no matter how hard we try, external solutions don't change the heart. And so, but it doesn't keep us from trying. So let's take politics, for example. In her book, Creed or Chaos, there's a British writer by the name of Dorothy Sayers that points out what other writers, this is, it's not just her, I mean, this is widely written in literature that politics have operated on the following basis. And that basis is this. Here's the, here, this is at the heart of any political system. And it's this, what is, wrong with the human, what is wrong with human society is not in the human heart. It lays in social structures and it lays in a lack of education. So in other words, if we can write the social structures that have gone wrong and if we can get people educated enough, we can make society great and we can live in kind of a utopian you know, uh, period. Uh, but the problem is, uh, you know, history's littered with people, right? Disillusioned people who thought that capitalism would solve the problems of our society or that socialism would create a better world. But neither of those structures has worked because neither of those structures can change and shape a human heart. They only reveal the greed that lies within, right? Take popular culture. Christina Kelly was a successful editor of, of Young Women's Magazine. So over a period of years, she was on the staff of Elle, of YM, of Jane, and another magazine called Sassy. 
And during this period, she wrote a confessional piece in which she asked this question. I'm just going to read you what she says. And as far as I know, she's not a follower of Jesus. She's just a keen observer of society. Here's what she said. Why do we crave celebrities? Here's my personal theory. To be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. But it's so dumb and it backfires because with this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted, liposuction scars, you would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem, she writes, not to feel totally inferior before them. We worship them to avoid feeling inconsequential, but doing so makes us feel even worse. I am part of this whole process as an editor. No wonder I feel soiled and dirty at the end of the day. To be human, she says, is to feel inconsequential. So here's what pop culture says to us. Aha, here's your way to be whole. Here's your way to be clean. Be pretty. Have flawless skin. Change your look. Look like a celebrity. Then you will feel whole and you will feel complete. And anybody who's tried that knows right here now that it's just a big fat lie. You know, whether it's pop culture, whether it's politics or religious striving, none of it works. In fact, Paul said this about religious striving, and he would know because he used to be in this camp. This is again Galatians chapter 3. He says, all who, this is the words that Steve read for us just a few moments ago, right? He says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, a couple of observations about this verse. You may say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus die on a cross? Why is he saying that Jesus died on a tree? Well, it's it's so fascinating. Paul is quoting from a passage in the Old Testament here. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21. And I want to read you uh, where he's quoting from. So here's the verse that he's quoting from. If a man is guilty of a capital offense and he is put to death. Okay, so somebody commits a heinous crime, a terrible crime. It's a capital offense. The way that Jews would uh, execute the death penalty is that they would throw rocks at them until they died, until they quit breathing, until they expired. So they've killed them by throwing rocks at them. Then what they would do is they would take that executed criminal and they would hang that criminal on a tree. And they would hang that criminal on a tree as kind of a a warning to other people, hey, here's what happens to bad people. 
Here's the kind of shame and humiliation you're going to have to endure if you commit a crime like this. And some scholars, not all, but some speculate that these criminals may have been hung on that tree naked in order to fully shame and fully expose them for who and what they were, who and what they had done. And then it goes on to say this, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse because they've committed, I mean, they're the worst of the worst, right? They've done the worst of the worst. Uh, so, you know, this is kind of, again, a way of saying, hey, well, look, this is kind of what happens to, you know, bad people when they die. So when Paul starts talking about the curse of God's law, part of what this curse is, is the shame and guilt that comes from breaking God's law. And Paul is trying to really accentuate that. And it's a shame and a guilt that will cause us to step back from God, step away from God, because we don't want God to see it. We try to hide it from Him. And in the end, it ends up just resulting in death. So here's another way to think about this. So Paul says that the law was powerless to save us, that it could only diagnose what our problem was. In other words, the law could only point out to us that we are sinners because we are all aware of the laws that we haven't kept, right? Of the laws that we've broken. And so Paul is talking about that in terms of a curse because it produces shame and guilt in us. And this is such powerful imagery. I, I like to think about it this way. Think about an MRI machine. If you go to the hospital, what do they use an MRI machine for? They use it to diagnose your condition, right? Whatever's wrong with your body. But can an MRI machine cure you? No, it can only diagnose the problem. It cannot offer a cure. And in the same way, the law diagnosed our problem before a holy God. But it couldn't cure our problem. This is why when Gabriel speaks out the message of Jesus, he calls it good news for all people. It's going to be a game changer. No more tension between a holy God and sinful people. And this imagery of a tree is so powerful that Peter, not just Paul, but Peter used it as well. Look at, uh, look at how he used it. 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, He himself bore our sins uh, in his body on the tree. Now again, whenever a New Testament author uses the word tree instead of cross, they're trying to get at guilt and shame. And, I, and we're going to talk about why Peter was so concerned about guilt and shame. So let's read the whole verse. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So what Peter is saying here is that Jesus literally took 
on my sin, your sin, our sins on the cross. He took that on himself. He took my sin and your sin away from us, which means I don't, you and I, we don't have to feel shame in his presence. His wounds would provide for your spiritual healing and mine. And this is so significant. This means things like bitterness and resentment and anger and discouragement and defeat. That we don't have to live with those things anymore. And I want you to notice something so powerful about this verse. Notice that Peter, he didn't say he himself bore your sins in his body on the tree. He said he includes himself. He said, no, he bore our sins, my sins, Peter would say, on the cross. Uh, And I want you to remember that Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. So I need you to hear me say that Peter did not read these words because he was reading a Bible. Peter experienced personally and profoundly the kind of shame and guilt that every one of us in this room has uh, had to deal with. He had to live with the shame that he had denied the best person he had ever known. And then he had to watch them slowly execute that man on a cross, fully aware of his denial. But when Peter met the resurrected Jesus, Jesus' message to him was clear. I forgive you. I love you. I died for you. And so pretty soon, Peter came to understand that the same forgiveness that had been offered to him, the same reconciliation, the same restoration that he had received from Jesus was going to be made available to everybody, all peoples, game-changing, good news, no more tension between a holy God and sinful human beings. And then Paul, who I quoted a few minutes ago, right? I want to just remind you of his background before we read something else that he said. You know, Paul was a skeptic of Jesus. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. He was a a violent, he says, persecutor of the church. And so when he came to, when he fell in love with Jesus and when he moved from being a skeptic of Jesus to becoming a follower of Jesus, I'll bet he would have loved to have gone back in time and changed all the insults, all the beatings, all the torture, all the arrests, all the imprisonment, all of that persecution of people who loved the Jesus he had now, only now, just now, come to love. And here's how he articulated this. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin. Not just take on sin. Become. Jesus was clothed in your sin and in mine. He literally bore that. He took that on so that in him in jesus we might become the righteousness of god see god clothed jesus in our sin he took our punishment so that we could be pardoned he became unclean to make us clean through jesus at infinite cost to himself god has clothed us in costly clean 
garments and it cost him everything. It cost him his blood. And it is the only thing that can cure, cure the shame that flows out of my heart and yours. External solutions don't work. It's an inside-out job and only Jesus can do it. So let me ask you, are you living with a specific failure in your past that you feel guilty about or that you've spent your whole life trying to make up for? Here's the good news. You don't have to make up for it because Jesus already did that for you. Your healing is found in a person who came looking for you, who sought you out, When you were still in your sin, I mean, one of the amazing hopes held out by the gospel is this, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came looking for us. So listen to me. This is so important. Some of you in this room, you walked in the door this morning and your orientation to life is that you have to prove yourself. You have to prove yourself to God. You have to prove to God that you're lovable, that you're worthy, that you're acceptable. And you're trying to prove to other people that you are worthy and you're lovable and you're acceptable. And here's amazing, listen to me, you stop it. You don't have to do that anymore. God has already shown you how much he loves you by sending his son to die in your place. He's already told you that you're worthy. He's already told you that you're lovable. He's already told you that you're accepted in His Son. So important for us to understand this. This Just some amazing words. And here's what that means. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, I mean, He said several things when He was on the cross, but one of the phrases that He uttered on the cross, He said this, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken literally means to turn your back on someone. And when Jesus said that, he was quoting a psalm. So even at the end of his life, the word of God was just flowing out of him, right? So he's quoting the psalmist and he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you want to know why God the Father had to forsake Turn his back on the son because he was bearing my sin. And a holy God can't look upon the kind of sins that I've committed. And a holy God can't look on the kinds of sins that you've committed either. And so God demonstrated the, your value by sending his most precious treasure to die for you. Uh, I mean, a, a person of the Godhead whom the Father had done eternity with, he sent that being, that person, to die in your place to take the penalty that you and I ever, that you and I, you know, deserved. And so all that results in this such a powerful sentence. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, because of all the things that we've said, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation, did you hear me? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, I think these are some of the most amazing, hopeful words that have ever, ever been spoken, uttered, or written. Listen, friend, 
If you're here this morning and you think that God rejects you, you are wrong. In Christ, God accepts you. God does not condemn you because of Jesus. Not ever. Not once. He says there is no condemnation. Ever. Because Jesus covered over the stain of guilt that God saw before with His own shed blood. So that when God looks at you, all He sees is the righteousness, the goodness of His Son. It's the greatest exchange. You know, one of the reasons we exchange gifts at Christmas with one another, I don't think it's a great reason, but one of the reasons we do it is because of the great exchange that occurred between Christ and us on the cross. And here's the key. The key to this is you have to be in Christ Jesus. Somebody might say, well, what does that mean to be in Christ? Well, it means that you have to be looking to Christ. You have to be following Christ. You have to be trusting Christ. You have to be relying on Christ. You have to be drawing from your relationship with Him. And as you stay in your relationship with Him, your heart just begins to change because it's an inside out job and no one else can take up residence in you to do that work other than Jesus. See, Jesus does something that no one else and nothing else can do. By His grace and His mercy and just His kindness, He begins to shape and change your heart. See, the key to living free from shame is to know this. It's not an outside job. It's an inside job and only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can do it. So here's what we're going to do. About a month ago, you know, it's been a long haul, right, the last couple of years. And as Pastor Brandon has just been counseling with some of you and talking with some of you these last couple of years have just been really heavy and people had kind of dumped a lot you know like just talking about regret and um, you know things they wish they could have back and and all this and so this weighed so heavy on Brandon's spirit that he actually wrote a song that he felt best expressed Uh, the concerns of God's people, and not just the concerns of God's people, but the concerns of God's people here and now. And so I want to invite you, uh, Pastor Brandon's up, and and he's going to actually sing through this song. And as you're reflecting on this song, I just, some of your very words may be in here. So as you reflect on that, and you allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you, and then I'm going to come back up And I'll have a final closing word. So let me pray for us first. Papa, would you just pierce our hearts through this music? Would you use these lyrics to break free the chains, the yoke of bondage and slavery that some of us carried in here in the form of guilt and shame this morning? We trust you to do a good work and a good thing in the next few minutes. And we ask it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.